And it is that kind of, like you say, that the story that you dream of happening, you know, if you've always been writing and hoping to be published. Because, you know, I, I did go from like walking dogs for a living and within two weeks I suddenly had all these publishing deals and it was insane. Hi, I'm Abby, and welcome to Criminal Types, where we dig into the real world cases, research, and obsessions that keep your favorite crime writers up at night. Hi, Criminal Types. I'm your host, Abby, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, we have such a treat of a conversation in store for you. Today, we're going to be speaking with one of my personal favorite authors. This author is brilliant. She writes incredible thrillers that blur the lines between horror, crime, and suspense. She loves all things spooky. She loves my favorite band, My Chemical Romance. She is the one and only CJ Tudor. Very cool. So I love CJ. She's the best. She's so much fun. But there's a rumor out there, and you could confirm this or not. I heard that you, Abby, have spent time in prison with C.J. Tudor. The two of you have been locked up together. Is, is this true? You know, on the record, I'm going to say, in a way, yes, I actually met C.J. Tudor in person for the first time in a prison of all places in Denmark, and not just any prison, but an abandoned prison. So there is this incredible crime fiction festival called Krimi Mason. I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat okay. Um, it takes place in the town of Horsens in Denmark, which is about an hour outside Copenhagen. And it is literally a crime festival that takes place in this old abandoned prison that they've kind of converted into event spaces. And it is the coolest, truly the coolest location you could ever imagine for a crime fiction festival. You don't actually sleep in the prison, which, you know, maybe slightly of a bummer. I did hear that it is actually possible. There are a few kind of cells that they do have set up where you could stay there overnight. Um, the crime festival, you don't actually sleep in the prison itself, but you are basically spending all day going from, you know, room to room. They have all these big event spaces and you're hearing from crime writers from all around Scandinavia, the UK, a few American crime writers as well. And that was the first place that I ever got to meet, CJ Tudor. Unfortunately, I have no relationships I could think of in my life that started in prison. You know, I think that's probably not a bad thing. I guess not. But it's <laughs> such a great it's such a great story for you to always be able to say me and CJ Tudor met in prison. It's a and we're still and we're still friends to this day. And we both got out and we're still friends you, to this day. <laughs> and you both got out. I wonder if that crime festival could have made some money with like a couple of VIP cots where like for like three tickets you could you could sleep in the prison. I mean, I would immediately pay more for that experience. So yes, I think they probably could. I think it's brilliant that they've actually used this for, for this kind of setting, though, because of course, Scandinavia has such a strong tradition of crime fiction, and mm -hmm. they bring in authors from all around the region, but also, like I said, from, you know, from outside of Scandinavia as well. And it it is so cool. Wow, very cool. Any other prison-based festivals that you are you have on your schedule coming up? No other prison-based festivals. There are some very exciting festivals coming up this year. Um, there is, of course, always Thriller Fest in New York in early June. Um, then there's BoucherCon, which takes place kind of late summer. This year it's going to be in San Diego. And then in November, I am going out to Iceland for Iceland Noir, which is this amazing crime festival that takes place in Reykjavik. And actually, in fact, earlier today, Today, I got an email that CJ Tudor has been confirmed to be a guest at the Reykjavik Crime Festival. So I'll be seeing her again, not in prison this time, but in Scandinavia. Oh, wow. Is it is it held like in a sewer or... <laughs> 
in a dungeon. <laughs> you know, it's actually held in a couple very cozy, delightful little like um, think of like Soho House, but Iceland edition. That's okay. kind of the venue. So All a little right. different vibe than the prison, but it'll be fun nonetheless. That's nice. You guys got out and now you get to just hang out in a hotel. Live the high life in Reykjavik. Exactly. <laughs> so before we get into this interview, with CJ, I just want to play a quick round of Stump the Abbey. Every It's America's favorite game show. It's taken the world by storm. So we have uh, some listeners who have sent in requests for book recommendations from you, but they have very specific things that they're looking for. Someone asks, I want to read a twisted serial killer, something that tells why they turned into a monster. This is a great request. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to say that about every single request that you read me because this is one of my favorite things to do. All right. So you need to be reading Lars Kepler. Lars Kepler is the pen name for a husband and wife writing duo. They live in Stockholm, Sweden. Speaking of the Scandinavians, they are, first of all, the kindest people you will ever meet. They have raised a beautiful family together and they write the darkest and most deliciously twisted serial killer thrillers. So check out their book, The Mirror Man. Lars Kepler's books are part of a series, but they're all written very intentionally to be accessible as standalone novels. I think The Mirror Man is one of the easiest to read on its own, and it does exactly what you're looking for. It gives you all that kind of deep dive into the mind of a villain, gives you all the killer's backstory, helps you understand, you know, why they're doing the very twisted things that they're doing. And it also gives you an incredible cinematic jaw-dropping finale that I absolutely loved. The Mirror Man. Oh, that sounds horrifying. That's a- It is so scary and so good. There's actually going to be, um, fingers crossed, it was announced recently, there's going to be a TV adaptation coming of kind of the Kepler universe. And Tom Hardy is um, set to star as the, there's like this one villain who is kind of like the Hannibal Lecter of the Lars Kepler universe. His name is Yurik Walter. He's not in The Mirror Man itself. Um, he's in a couple of other Kepler thrillers. If you're interested in learning about him, check out their book, The Sandman. But Tom Hardy is going to play Yurik Walter. I think it's going to be super creepy. Wow, look for that. Well, you know what? You could not be stumped on this episode. So I think it's time to move on to the interview. You may be unstumpable. We'll see on a future episode. You can try me again next time. Well, now, without further ado, my conversation with the amazing CJ Tudor. Well, CJ, it's so great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me today on Criminal Types. How are you doing? I am good. Yes, thank you ever so much for having me back. Yeah, I am I am really good. Things are things are going well. You've been in New York doing some exploring. How has yes. it been? Oh, cool. Yeah, so I'm here with my husband, Neil, and my little girl, Betty, who's nine and a half. Um, so, yeah, we've been doing all the touristy stuff. So, yeah, we took Betty up the Empire State the other day, and then she's been shopping this morning. She's kind of all about the shopping at the moment. She's I love it. with the M&M store. Good choices, good choices. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to get to see you again. I was thinking back, and I think the first time that we met... I think it was when your debut novel, The Chalk Man, was first published was. here in the States. Yes. And I was like a baby book blogger. And your publisher very kindly invited me to this media lunch or media party like they were putting little, on. It was like a little launch in this kind of like yes. little restauranty thing. It was, was really cool. cool. Yeah. I didn't know a single soul there. I was so nervous because I was so really? I, I loved your book so much. And I was so starstruck and so nervous. And everyone was so kind. You were so kind to me. This feels like a real full I, I was, I was very nervous as well. I'm just... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it feels super full like, circle. God, I'm in New York and people talk to me about my book. This is so awesome. <laughs> and here we are again. And you have a new book. The day we're recording this, you have a new book called yes. The Drift that has just come out. And we're going to be chatting a little bit about that book. But I would love to kind of start by going all the way back to right. the early days of CJ Tudor before you were a writer. When yes. you think back, was there a particular, you know, book or movie or moment that was kind of your introduction to the world of all things creepy and suspenseful? It's weird, actually. I used to read, even when I was quite young, I was really attracted to weird, creepy stories and things. And I think probably my very first kind of book of creepy stories was, you know, you used to get these like Hamlin's book of monsters and Hamlin's book of ghosts. I've never they heard were, of these. And it must be probably a UK thing. So they yeah. were like these big hardbacks with kind of gruesome covers. And they'd have lots of ghost stories inside and, and scary illustrations and things. And I think that was kind of my really first introduction to reading scary stories. Yeah. And then give myself terrible nightmares. But then I used to want to read them again. And that really set me on the path of sort of seeking out kind of ghost stories and, and creepy stories. And then when I was about 11 or 12, I think that was when I picked up a copy of Christine by Steve Stephen King from the library. Uh, okay. And that was kind of like my awakening. It was like there was this like, like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, more. Oh. I'm like, this is really what I want to do. This is sort of, yeah. And then I, you know, I, I read horror kind of exclusively yeah. in my teens. But then horror was, it was the 80s and horror was really big as well. Yeah. So I read lots of King and James Herbert and Dean Koontz and Clive Barker and, and yeah, and I just kind of immersed myself in horror. But then, you know, a lot of teenagers do. But I think yeah. at the time in the 80s, it was such a, a thing. Kind of a heyday. Yeah. Well. yeah, it really yeah. was. That's so cool. What do you think it was about Stephen King? Because I know you've spoken a lot and I'm a huge fan of yours. I've read a lot of interviews of yours and you always refer to him as kind of a huge influence on your writing. What is it about his work in particular that has kind of resonated with you so much? I think, I mean, a lot of authors will reference Stephen King, even if they don't necessarily write kind of horror or dark stories, because he's just he's just such a good storyteller. Yeah. And I think that's it. There's It's something about a voice. And most of the authors I love have that thing that's so difficult to kind of pin down. It is a voice. Mm -hmm. It is a voice that when you read their book, you know you're reading one of their books. And, you know, that the stories can be massively different. But there's that voice that kind of reels you in. And I think that's what I found with Stephen King. And I think a lot of people would would say the same. Yeah. Just, just something about that voice that you within a first few paragraphs, someone telling you this story and you want to listen to it. Um, and for me, yeah, I think... You know, when I read books, that's what I look for in sort of my favourite books, I guess. You know, you can read lots of books and you can read books that, that, are, that are great, kind of, you know, that, that it's a good book and it's, it's well written and it's well plotted. But if it hasn't got that, that voice, yeah, it's, yeah, it, there's some, there can be something lacking. So for me, I think that's what it is with, with Stephen King. You know, you, you know, instantly when you pick up one of his books, it, it's his voice in your head. Yeah. It's yeah. a magical feeling when you pick up a book like that. And I know exactly what you mean because, and I'm not yeah. just saying this, that's how I feel about your books. When I pick oh, up one you. of your books, I am just immediately transported. And I was saying this to you before we started recording here, but I picked up your book, The Drift, um, this past weekend on the day we're recording this. And I thought, oh, I'll just read a couple pages and then I have errands to do. I sat down and did nothing but read the whole day. And I feel like when I pick <laughs> up your books, I'm I'm transported. I feel like I'm in the hands of such a kind of confident storyteller. Oh, and thank you. 
So I know exactly what you mean about Stephen King because that is genuinely how I feel when I'm reading your books. But I'm curious. I mean, when I tell people, because I'm always trying to get people to read more C.J. Tudor, when I talk about your books, you know, (laughs) just doing my job here, um, you are kind of an author who crosses genres in your writing. And, you know, you taught me a term way back in the day. You called it a chiller. And I thought this was a brilliant phrase. And could you explain what a chiller is? Well, I guess it's kind of a mix of of horror and thriller to an extent, because that's what I like to do in my books. I like to kind of have a little bit of a creepy dark edge. But they're also mysteries and thrillers. So it's it's not all about, you know, horror and scares. At the heart of most of the books, there's a, there's a central mystery um, that has to be solved. And yeah, and I like mixing those together. I think it, it works really well. I couldn't kind of do wholly one or the other, I don't think. I mean, you know, a couple of my books, you you know, I, I started writing them and thought, well, this could kind of work as just what I would call a straight mystery or thriller. Yeah. But I always like to go off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> and add something else in. So, yeah, so that's, I think, Chiller's quite a quite a good description. I've got a feeling I might have stolen that of somebody else, but I liked it so much I'm, I'm claiming it as my own. That's okay. I always say <laughs> CJ Tudor taught me this phrase, Chiller. So between the two of us, we will establish you as the it originator that's what of I said. <laughs> so you've mentioned you know, Stephen King obviously being a huge horror influence. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but again, in all my fangirling and online stalking of CJ Tudor over the years, <laughs> I think you mentioned also being an Agatha Christie fan. Is that true? Yeah, I think they were the first mysteries that I started to read. So I was quite a precocious reader. So in between my sort of ghost stories and stuff, I started on a little of Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. I did sort of the Enid Blytons yeah. and like the famous Five. And I think I did stuff like Nancy Drew and things as well. Um, so I sort of got introduced to mysteries. And then it was a natural progression to Agatha Christie, really. Yeah. And again, I used to get the books from the library and read. I That's probably most of the Agatha Christie's. I read a lot of Agatha Christie's because, again, it was, yeah, I liked the mysteries and the plotting. Yeah. Um, And I suppose that's the love, isn't it? I love a really well-plotted mystery, but I also really like something that is scary as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's got a darker edge. And it's funny because I think people think Agatha Christie is so cosy, and obviously she's not nearly as dark or horrific as a Stephen King, but but it's not cosy. It's not cosy. Definitely not cosy. No, like her book Crooked House, like that's a messed up book. Yeah, you know, they're they're pretty dark. They are. They (laughs) totally are. I mean, do you feel as a writer that those kind of genre categories, are they confining to you sometimes? How much do you think those genre categories matter? I mean, I think they matter more to, to bookshops, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, and and maybe maybe publishers and booksellers than sort of authors. I think, but I think more and more we're seeing books that are a mix of genres. I think there's 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 a lot more writers mixing up genres. And I think we're getting more open to that. I mean, in the same way that TV and films do, I yeah. think. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing that more with publishing and with books. I I don't like to find genres, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's, you know, personally, when I'm looking for something to read, I like something that, that kind of pushes the boundaries yeah. of yeah. genre and does something a little bit different with it. So that's what I'm a fan of reading. And that's kind of what I like to write as well. So yeah, I, I think sort of just defining things sometimes as this is crime, this is horror, yeah. this is this is thriller. You know, when, when you know, you know, I, I've read some, what you'd class as crime books that have been much more gruesome and horrific yeah. than I would class as some books that you would maybe call horror. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I, I think I understand why there sort of has to be those definitions to an extent. Yeah. But I do like to mix it up and I like to read other authors who mix it up. Yeah. Because, you know, I always say with crime as well, you know, you can you can set it anywhere. You can, you know, you can you set it in any time period and, and any place you want, really, as long as there's a mystery true, or, or yeah. a body. Yep. You know, it's a crime novel, really. That's absolutely true. Are there examples of authors who kind of spring to mind who you, you know, personally love the way they are pushing those genre boundaries? Yeah. I mean, I, I love uh, Stuart Turton. Mm-hmm. 
um, his book, I think, Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, did that brilliantly, mm-hmm. you know, which because it was a classic Agatha Christie setup. Yeah. But you've got this guy who wakes up in a different character's body every day. Yeah. And has to solve this mystery. So you've got kind of Quantum Leap and, and Agatha Christie all sort of mashed up. And that's kind of a perfect example, I think, really, as well. I read a really good book recently called Sign Here by Claudia Lutz. I loved that book. Isn't it such a good book? Oh my Absolutely gosh. loved it. That is, And that's exactly what you're talking about, where the premise here is, yeah. you want to explain the premise a little it's, bit? Well, it's basically a guy who's like what they call a deal broker <laughs> in hell. Yeah. So he has to kind of go and get people's souls and make deals with people. So, you know, they'll sell their souls to him, essentially. And he's kind of, he's trying to get like, this last soul of this family. Yeah. If he gets kind of the full collection, then he gets this big promotion. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of promote his way out of hell. And it starts off as it's sort of quite a fantastic premise. Yeah. And you think, okay. But then it, it becomes kind of a, a mystery and it's a family drama and it's yeah. horror and it's funny as well. It's very it's funny and it's poignant and at times. Poignant. Oh, it's yeah. got so much going on. Yeah. So it's much more than the sum of its parts. It's, yeah. And, and yeah, and I loved it because it's exactly such a perfect example of, of how you can mix things up yeah. and, and make such a great book. Yeah, that is the, that is truly the perfect yeah. example. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, your own kind of path to publication. You obviously have been a huge fan of all things creepy for a very long time. Yes. Was the end goal for you always to become a published author? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I always wanted to be an author. I always wanted to be a writer. But I think like a lot of people, life kind of got in the way. Yeah. You know, I... I had sort of spent my 20s kind of just, I don't know, messing up really, I think, basically, and never knuckling down for anything. You know, I did the whole, you know, rubbish jobs and, and going out too much and toxic relationships. And and I always I always wrote, you know, when I was at school, my teachers, you know, were always like, you know, you've, you know, you've got to go on and be an author. And, and But then also I think there's that idea, isn't there, that I had this idea that authors were something very sort of London and posh and yeah. and. and, and and it wasn't something that far the removed the kind of suburbs yeah. kind of did. I had to do something that paid the bills to do with writing. Hence, I worked in jobs that were kind of like you know. I did some journalism. I worked in radio writing adverts. I was a copywriter, um, and I did all sorts of jobs as well. You know, I've, I've you know I've been everything from like TV presenter to dog walker. Wow! <laughs> but I was I was never very good at settling. You see, that was I was I was always flitted from jobs to jobs. I spent most of my life trying not to have a proper job in a way, but I was always writing in the background. But it, it just took me a long time to knuckle down and start finishing things. I think yeah. Yeah. having that commitment to sit and write a novel from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really do that till my mid thirties. Yeah. And then it took me another, you know, 10 years till I finally got published with The Chalk Man. Wow. I mean, I always find it so inspiring because I think there's there can be a perception that authors are sort of overnight successes. Because, yeah. of course, you know, we don't see anything until this is it. you've got the splashy book deal. Uh-huh. We don't see yeah. this background. And like most authors you speak to will, will have similar stories. Yeah. If, you know, of rejections and or of signing with a publisher or agent and then actually never getting it it sort of published and yeah. failure and changing agents or ch- so there's there's so many stories of of you know most most authors i know had a lot of failure before they got the break yeah absolutely with the published book and i mean when your break came with the chalk man it was a huge break you know the book was i think sold in yeah. 40 countries i mean you won all sorts of awards huge bestseller your idol stephen king even tweeted know, about the book that must have been amazing what was that experience like for you once it finally came to fruition I mean, it was that kind of dreams come true, but it, it was kind of crazy because it, it was one of those things where life changed in two weeks. And it is that kind of, like you say, that the story that you dream of happening, you yeah. know, if you've always been writing and hoping to be published. Because, you know, I, I did go from like walking dogs for a living and within two weeks I suddenly had 
all these publishing deals. Yeah. And wow. it was insane. Yeah. And, you know, I remember standing in our little kitchen with, with Neil, my husband, you know, making Betty's dinner. And I think, you know, an, an offer had come in from the US and an offer had come in from somewhere else and just looking at each other and knowing that this was absolutely life changing. Yeah. Um, and so it was incredible for lots and lots of reasons. It, it, it really sort of did change, you know, everything that I did. And it's it's been wonderful because it's enabled sort of, you know, us, A, I get to write full time, yeah. which is, you know, the dream, which is brilliant. Uh, but it's enabled us to do so many other things as well. You know, I've met so many interesting people and my idols, you know, I've met some of my idols, which is amazing, and travelled to different countries because you never think when you write a book, you, you have this idea that you'd love to see your book published and, and it's all very sort of small. And I'd never really thought about being published in other countries and and then, you know, travelling to other countries and, and, and the people, you know, loving the book. And, you know, we went to Brazil and, and I had no idea that, that I'm, I'm huge in Brazil, which is really weird. But 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 it is. It's, yeah. You know, the books sell so, amazingly in Brazil. It's the sort, yeah. not the sort of thing you think about no, when you're no. trying to write your book in on the kitchen table. And Because writing stuff. is so solitary. I it's mean, you're it's, alone. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it couldn't happen to a nicer person. Oh, it's it's amazing. No, it's true. And I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Chalkman, not in specifics, but in terms of the themes that I feel like it yes. introduced, because I think it really set the tone for some of the themes and kind of vibes, I'm going to say, that have become so essential to the CJ Tudor <laughs> brand. And I was curious in particular if you could share a little bit about the way that you've explored childhood in your books, because I think the Chalkman obviously has a huge theme of kind of adolescence mm. and coming of age, but childhood also pops up in some of your other works as well. Yeah. What is it that makes childhood so interesting to you? I guess because for a lot of kids, it's quite a dark time. We have this idea of, you know, oh, school days, the best you lies, childhood being lovely and carefree. But I think particularly once you hit the sort of age of 10 and 11, it can be quite tricky for a lot of kids. Um, and like the Chalkman, the kids in, in that, you know, gang of friends in that, they're you know, 11 years old. And I think it's a really weird time of life because you're not really a teenager. You're not a child. It's it's quite difficult. You're starting to come out of that childhood and, and all your illusions, you know, Father Christmas doesn't exist. Your parents are human too. Yeah. And, and and all these things, You you, it's a weird time of life when you're sort of starting to really grow up. Um, and for some kids, it's a really horrible time of life because, yeah. you know, that's the time when you, I think you really start to encounter things like bullying mm -hmm. and unpleasant things like that. And, you know, you start to notice perhaps the, the differences between you and other kids and things. And those are, are quite often picked upon. So, I, you know, I didn't have the greatest time in, in school in sort of my teenage years. And so I think, you know, I did use a lot of that in the books, that idea of, you know, being slightly outside yeah. the kind of popular group of kids and, you know, you know, we I, I most most I had a quite sort of a, a small group of friends. We kind of looked out for each other, but we all kind of suffered bullying to a greater yeah. extent or yeah. not. Not as badly as perhaps some other kids, but you know, it was it was always there. And I think you know, for many children, that kind of going into school every day is like going into the you know the gladiators pit or yeah. something. Yeah, it's terrifying. So I think that's why I write about that quite a lot in my books because I think it's such it was such a vivid time for me particularly in The Chalkman, but it does crop up in other books as well. And I find writing kids really interesting as well. Yeah. You know, you know kids are amazing as well as being quite brutal sometimes. Yeah. And and they're, they're interesting to write, yeah. you know, writing the, the, the kid before they become the adult. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because, I mean, your characters, I think, are one of the hallmarks of your writing that I particularly love. I think you write these stories that they are, they can be pretty brutal, they can be, be pretty scary, but you give us these characters who have so much humanity to them that I think it just makes us even more invested and therefore even more scared about what's what you're putting your characters <laughs> through. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what you're drawing on just in general when you're writing your characters? 
characters? Are you do you feel like you're tending to draw on personal experiences? Are you drawing on the lives of people you know? How do these characters kind of come to you? I always feel they like come kind of almost fully formed. Yeah. It's really weird. And it's amazing. That voice again, I think. Mm -hmm. Because the first bit for me for writing anything is the character's voice. If I haven't got that voice in my head, I can't write the book. It's got to be really, really clear to me. And that's the starting point for every character. And then I think perhaps you do throw in bits of you, perhaps bits of other people. Yeah. I always, once I've got that voice, I get quite a clear image of them in my mind and they start to sort of really form. So, you know, certainly there are some bits where you draw on your own life or your own experiences to an extent. But but really, yeah, it always feels like they're just waiting to be found. It's amazing. It's really weird, isn't it? No, it's amazing. It's quite, quite sort of insane, but but it, but it really is. It just feels like they just kind of like come forth in your mind. Yeah. No, it's incredible. And I mean, maybe it explains why they feel so real to me as the reader too, because they are kind of these fully formed people who show do, up in your I'm brain. I'm hearing voices, but you know, in, in a good way. But in a good way. You're putting it to good use. Now, I have to ask you, before we kind of shift to talking about your new novel, I have been wanting to ask you this for so long, and I finally have you captive here in the studio uh-huh. with me. We are both, we have something very important in common, which is our mutual love of My Chemical Romance. And you have (laughs) definitely given some little My Chemical Romance sort of (laughs) Easter eggs and nods throughout your work. So I have to just ask you officially on the record, CJ Tudor, what is your favorite My Chemical Romance song? Oh, crumbs. That's that's putting me on the spot, isn't it? See, I still have a very a great fondness for the first first album, and I'm not okay, which I always used to think is one of my theme songs that playing very loudly while driving. Um, but I like I like the you know as a whole I like the album um, Danger Days. There's some cracking songs on there. Um, oh god, there's so many really I as know. well. And then I'm, I'm terrible because God, we ordered this. You do that thing where you sort of play stuff and you like say play My Chemical Ro- yeah, Romance yeah. playlist, and then you're like, oh, I love that song. I can't remember what the hell. Oh, it's I called. know. Then you hear it again. You're like, oh, this one. I was absolutely freaking out because you had a short story collection called A Sliver of Darkness come out a few months ago. And you actually have a story that was inspired by the song. It's na 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 I don't know yeah, how many na na na's Yeah. I mean, what, tell us a little bit about maybe what it is about My Chemical Romance that inspires your writing. I mean, I think they're amazing storytellers in their lyrics. Is they that... are. I, I, yeah. They're, they're just, I mean, I, mean I, lo- I love rock. I love emo. I love all that sort of music. Um, and, you know, I've always been a, a My Chemical Romance fan. And that was, and I just remember playing that song a lot at the time. Yeah. And I think it's got the lines in it. It goes, let me tell you about the, it, let me tell you about the fat man or the jazz man. And yes. Yeah. Talks yeah, yeah. About put your heart in a box. Yep. In a, and, and yeah, there was something about those lyrics that I just thought they were quite dark. It's true. And uh, that, yeah, that kind of was like a good kicking off point for the story. Um, but yeah, but I like listening to, I mean, I don't listen to music when I write. Yeah. I like to listen to it when I run. Mm-hmm. I like to listen to it. You know, we, we got a record player again recently. Oh, that's awesome. So we've been buying a lot of stuff on vinyl. And actually, if you like my, if you're a big My Chemical Romance fan, we, we just started listening to a band called Creeper. Oh, I've never even heard of them. They've been around for a few years now. Okay. But they're very My Chemical Romance. Incredible. Certainly a couple of the first albums are. Okay. Um, and they're great as well. I'm and again, they're down. really, really, they're really dark and over the top. They like to do a stage show where like the lead singer pretends to have his head cut off oh, at the end of it. I'm sold. I'm in. You see? <laughs> so I thought you'd like that. So yeah. But I, but I do think you do to get lyrics and things that do kind of yeah. spark off inspiration, even though I don't listen to music when I write. Yeah. Well, I just love little it phrases so much. sometimes. I'm like, as if I didn't love your work enough already, this is just like another reason to love <laughs> CJ Tudor. But let's talk a little bit about your newest book, The Drift. Yes. So if you're comfortable sharing with us, I know you've been pretty open about this on social media, that there was a little bit of a period of time where you didn't have a new book out and readers have been anticipating a new novel yes. from you for a while now. Yes. If you're comfortable, could you share with us a little bit about, you know, what, what's been going on in your life and what led you to publish The Drift now? 
Well, I had the idea for the drift back in 2019. It was probably about sort of autumn time. Um, and it was it was a little different to my other books. I knew it was. And I remember pitching it to my sort of agent. I talked to my UK editor. Um, but I was kind of contracted or we sort of really talked about another book that I was going to write. And because this one was different, I think there was a feeling of do this book first and maybe keep the drift on the back burner, maybe for the next one along. Um, and so I was like, right, fine. Yeah, that's fine. I will crack on with that. And it was weird. Right from the start, I, I think I struggled a little bit with the book, but more so, you know, then we had obviously 2020 came and COVID and the pandemic. And of course, I was trying to write this book throughout the pandemic, um, along with homeschooling and everything else that was yeah. going on. And I just found myself struggling with it. I, you know, I say about getting the voice. I felt like I didn't have the voice. Yeah. Then, you know, awfully, um, we lost my dad in early 2021. Um, and I think that as well made it even harder, I think, to finish the book because the book became bound up in, I think, lots of other horrible things that had happened. And I did finish it. And I sent it to my editors and then they came back with a lot of notes. And and my heart kind of went, you know what? This is telling me yeah. that this book isn't right. And I know it's not right. And while I'm, I'm not scared of going back and editing to fix things, I don't think I can fix it. I don't think I can face going back to it. Yeah. And I, so I had to have quite an honest discussion with my editor and say, look, I, I hate this book, <laughs> in all honesty. Yeah. I hate it. I don't want to go back and edit it. I don't want to try and fix it. I don't love it. It's it, I don't think it's good enough. Yeah. I don't want to put something out I don't love. And I, I really just want to put this to one side. Yeah. And they were really understanding. Yeah. And we sort of had a good chat about it. Because um, I remember when I got the notes, I just burst into tears. And I said to my husband, Neil, I said, I just can't go back to it. I cannot go back to this book. So we we chatted and we agreed that, you know, I I, I still had the drift at the back of my head because mm -hmm. it was an idea I really, really, really loved. And so we agreed that I would write that next because I was passionate about it. Yeah. And we put out a short story collection as well in the meantime. So I kind of worked on the short stories and the drift at the same time yeah. a little bit. I had already some short stories I'd already written, some I wrote just for the collection. So we kind of had something that came out that year. Yeah. But then we did skip a novel um, publication year. And in a way... I found writing The Drift really cathartic. I wrote it really quickly mm -hmm. and I wrote it as if I was just writing for me. Yeah. So I wasn't thinking about readers or, or editors or publishers or anything. I just wrote it without expectation. Yeah. And I, it was really freeing. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I think sometimes as a reader, it's almost like you can tell when an author has that experience. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with authors and I've particularly loved a certain book of theirs. And they say that exact thing. You yeah. know, they say, like, I'm thinking of Riley Sager with his book, The House Across the Lake. I loved that book so Very much. Very different, though, isn't Very it? Very different from yes. what he normally writes. Yeah. And he said the same thing that yeah. you're saying now. You know, to paraphrase, he said, you know, I wrote this book for me. Like, this was yes. the story I yes. wanted to tell. And I mean, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally at all, I love that book yeah. so much. And I and love the really drift so much. And I was really surprised as well because yeah. it did not go in the direction I was expecting Absolutely. having previous books. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the same is true of The Drift. This is a very different story for it you. It is, And yeah. it is a brilliant book to the listener right now. This is a, like, just 10 out of 10 incredible oh, book. I you. can't recommend it highly enough. And maybe before we get any farther in this discussion, maybe you could just sort of set the scene for folks. Tell us a little bit about what's going yes. on in this story. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, I had the idea... Um, Initially, it started with me thinking about locked room mysteries mm -hmm. and what would be the, the kind of the tightest locked room mystery you could write. And I started thinking about a cable car stuck, stranded, thousands of feet in the air in this kind of snowy landscape in a snowstorm because the power had failed. And there's a group of strangers and a dead body. And I, and I really liked this idea, but I thought on its own, I didn't feel it was quite enough to build a novel on. Yeah. 
So then I started thinking, okay, what if there were like essentially three different locked rooms? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're we're in an isolated location. There's a raging snowstorm and then we've got this stranded cable car and our protagonist Meg is, is stuck there with these strangers and a dead body. And then we have a, a coach. Um, Hannah is on a coach. She's being evacuated from a boarding school in the mountains and it crashes and overturns and again finds herself trapped with you know, the living and the dead in this coach crash. But there's this underlying something else is going on because there's a reason they they can't get out of the coach. The emergency exits have been disabled and the driver seems to have disappeared. And then we have this other location where Carter is in this isolated ski chalet called The Retreat with um, a group of people that he lives there and and works with. And the power is failing, the generator's failing. There's something they obviously want to keep out outside, but kind of even more worryingly, there's, if the if the power fails, there's something in the basement. <laughs> they really don't want getting out either. So we gradually learn that all these stories are linked. Um, and it isn't giving too much away to say that, you know, we, we also learn that this isn't sort of set now. It's, it's slightly near future. Basically, there's been a viral pandemic. Society has, has sort of broken down, which is why kind of nobody's just coming to rescue right. these people. They're all trying to escape from something or to get to safety somewhere. Um and that's kind of the backdrop to the story. And then there are lots of other elements and the stories gradually come together and we find out kind of how they're all connected. It's so brilliant. And when we were speaking earlier about, you know, Agatha Christie and Stephen King, I was like thinking that is just the perfect combination for what this <laughs> Agatha book Christie is. King mashup. It is. I mean, it is that like isolated location thriller. You have the claustrophobia and tension of these, yes. you know, locked, locked rooms, quote unquote. Plus you have some genuine horror elements in this book. Yeah. I mean, this book definitely gets gory at times. And I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> because I think that is a selling point in a thriller. But now you've mentioned, you know, that voice is really important to you. And obviously there are three points of view that are driving this story. Which one came to you first then? Was it Meg? I actually did write Meg's chapter first originally Mm -hmm. because that was the original idea of the cable car. Mm -hmm. So it was Meg who I wrote to start with. I wrote Meg, Carter and then Hannah's first chapters. Mm -hmm. Interestingly then, when I came to write it, I wrote each section okay separately oh wow so kind of each character in their location has yeah. their own almost it's an almost self-contained story yeah and then i chopped them together to sort of form the whole novel wow because i felt that each story had to be self-contained in yeah. a way yeah that you, you you had to have sort of the tension build up and the story arc mm-hmm. of each location to keep things moving and that tension going each story had to be satisfying on its own yeah and work together and i actually kind of i wrote carter's section in whole mm-hmm. to start with um, because probably there was the most freedom in writing that section. Yeah. Um, and I put the ending in place quite early on as well. Okay, yeah. So I knew where I was heading with it. Yeah. Um, and it was quite useful because it's quite a complex book. Quite a complex book, she says. It's a very complex <laughs> book. Um, so actually breaking it down and writing each character's section made it kind of more manageable yeah. in a way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that too, because I do find, you know, sometimes I think when you're reading books that have those multiple points of view, mm. you can sort of feel like one is the dominant point of view and exactly. others are, I'm yes. going to say, quote unquote, filler or something like yeah. that. I They're supporting. That. And yeah. that is never the way I was trying to guess who you wrote first in this, in this <laughs> book. And I had no idea. My guess was Hannah and you wrote Hannah last. So that's, you know, just goes to show they were all so well developed. And like you're saying, such I don't know, complete stories on their own. You did an amazing job with that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I did. I think that was the thing. I didn't want people thinking, oh my God, I want to skip through so-and-so's chapter right, right. to get to the next one. <laughs> there, there had to be something interesting happening in each you know, each storyline each time in each chapter. Yeah. And I think that worked doing it as whole sort of self-contained stories then. Yeah. 
the answer to this question might be very obvious, but I mean, looking at the drift and also some of the stories in A Sliver of Darkness, it seems like there is kind of a post-apocalyptic mm. kind of vibe going on. I mean, I yeah. wonder what could have precipitated those <laughs> themes. Could you share a little bit with us of what sort of the inspiration was behind that? I mean, it's really weird, isn't it? Because like I said, I had the idea for the drift back in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when I came to write it in 2021, part of me was a little bit of oh, crumbs. Is this going to be okay to write yeah, this now? Yeah, yeah. You know, because the landscape has changed. Yeah. But then I also thought I really wanted to write it because because of what we'd all been through yeah. um, with, with COVID and the pandemic. I felt that I was actually better informed to write it. Yeah. You know, and, and there were certainly lots of aspects I could bring out that I wouldn't have been able to before yeah. had I written it in 2019. Yeah. So it, it did help inform it in lots more ways. Um, and yeah, there are a lot. But, but I say it was, I felt quite kind of <laughs> when, when everything sort of kicked off in 2020 it was a bit like my god I feel kind of a little bit prophetic yeah that's a little bit ooh I don't know weird I know (laughs) but yeah I I think a lot of the short stories as well were born out of um, you know the pandemic in a way yeah I was obviously thinking a lot about the end of the world at that time obviously (laughs) obviously so I mean, I I mentioned this earlier, but The Drift is quite a dark book. And I I truly do mean that as a compliment. My favorite thrillers are these dark thrillers. And that's what you always give us. I think this might be your darkest thriller, though, not only because it is. Yeah. Yeah. Not only because of some of the, I'm going to say a little bit more gory, creative, Mm. gory scenes, shall we say. But this book gave me a little bit of existential dread in a good way. (laughs) But it definitely did. I mean, Talk to us a little bit about the headspace that you're in as a writer when you're writing a story that is dealing with dark stuff like this one is. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a weird thing to say that, you know, whenever I say to one, I really enjoyed writing The Drift. I really had a lot of fun writing it. People yeah. look at me and go, sorry, you did what? <laughs> and, but I think it, it it got a lot out. Yeah. And I like that the darker I go, the more fun I have sometimes. Yeah. It's a weird way to say it. Perhaps it's just getting that all out on the page. Um, I found it sort of easy to write. It, it was... It was cathartic. I think cathartic is a good word again, because I just got lots of things I've been thinking about in my head about, you know, stuff we'd gone through. And and I always say, actually, the drift isn't about necessarily, you know, set in our world, if that makes sense. I always think of my stories existing in a slight alternate universe. Mm, mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a kind of what if this this happened? Yeah. You know, what if this happened instead of what happened to all of us? And it went in a completely different and much darker direction. Yeah. Um, But I'm also sort of keen to point out to people that, you know, kind of, the whole viral thing in the book, although it informs where our characters are and their actions, um, the book is really about what happens to them afterwards in a way. Um, It's about the situation they're stuck in because of that and what they're having to deal with because of that. Um, But obviously it does kind of inform where they are. And and it it was interesting to look at some of the sort of moral dilemmas and and things. I think when we we all went through the pandemic, we we did find, I think, that, you know, society became quite divided. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, we, we some, you know, there's this idea perhaps in disasters and things that we might bond together right, right. and work together. But I think, you know, very quickly with anyone, people's opinions become very quickly divided about yeah. things and people form factions Yeah, and, and find it very hard to see another point of view. And I think there's an anxiety and panic that does that to people. Yeah. So in sort of their very tight, small sort of, you know, places where they've got to survive, the characters in the book, the same thing happens. I think one character says at the start, you know, you, you're all in it together because, you you know, you're all thinking of ways to get through yeah, this. Yeah. But very quickly, you know, arguments start to happen. Yeah. Divides start to happen. Yeah. And it becomes more about I. How am I going to get through this, you yeah, know? Yeah. Because uh, I think, you know, we're basically wired to exist. And particularly, you know, with people who perhaps aren't your loved ones. Who, right, yeah. 
may do anything to protect, we can become very selfish. Absolutely. And it's that whole question of survival. And you're really putting these strangers in extreme circumstances and seeing what happens. And it's not always going to be pretty, but it is very entertaining. That (laughs) is for sure. Now, I know we are almost out of time here, but I would love to um, do a little lightning round of kind of rapid fire questions if you're up for it. Mm. All right. Rapid fire question number one here. What is one thriller you think should be on everyone's to read pile? Oh, God. Oh, God. I've got to be quick. <laughs> I've got to be quick. Um, 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 Shutter Island, because it's classic. Great choice. Coffee or tea while writing? Tea. Writing in the morning or writing at night? Morning. What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, God. Um, bizarrely, but when I was a kid, my, my, the, the movie that scared me the most was the Evil De- was Evil Dead. Oh, I've never seen it. I did, yeah, it gave me nightmares <laughs> for, for, for ages. And But, but you know, with, I tell you, I don't watch a lot of scary movies. Really? Yeah, because I they freak w- me out too much. No way. No, CJ Tudor is too scared of scary movies. I am actually scared of really scary movies. That is, I would never have expected that. Yeah. Scary books I can do, but scary yeah. movies I don't tend to watch a lot of. That is so funny. I never would have I know. expected that. I am actually wow. a wuss. <laughs> you go. I love it. That's our fun fact of the interview. I love it. A <laughs> couple more questions for you here. Are ghosts real? No. Which of your books would you recommend readers start with? Um, I would say start with the first, The Chalk Man. And what are you reading now? I'm not reading anything at the moment because I'm like really deep into writing my next book. Ooh. So I don't tend to read fiction yep. um, when I'm writing because I find it just kind of distracts me a bit. Yeah. Um, I have lined up to read soon The House in the Pines, which I haven't read yet, which yeah. everyone says is really, really yes, good. Yeah. And sounds right up my street. And, and yeah, the last fiction I read would have been Sign Here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which, was a, which was a great one. <laughs> which is a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And I truly appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I truly could have just kept talking with CJ for hours and hours. I think when you're a huge personal fan of an author, it's kind of the ultimate dream, not only to be able to meet them, but also to hit it off with them as well as you hoped you would based on how much you love their books. And that is exactly what my experience has been like with CJ. Thank you very much, CJ, for your time and for joining me for this conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or rating on your preferred podcast platform. Feel free to send me any questions, book recommendation requests, or comments at criminaltypes at prh.com. This show is edited by Clayton Gumbert. Music in this episode from the songs Empty Orchestra, No Reason, and Xenarthrin, written and performed by Shearwater, courtesy of Sub Pop. Criminal Types is a production of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group and Penguin Random House Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.